Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, the head of Phoenix's Office of Accountability and Transparency is resigning and raising questions about its independence. And we'll visit a company of Stitchers, which is keeping letter jacket production in the family. But first, the University of Arizona continues to look for ways to get its financial house in order. The university has been dealing with what leaders have called a financial crisis for a few months now. The school has asked academic units to come up with three different plans for cutting their budgets, ranging from 5 percent to 15 percent. Layoffs are also on the table. Late last month, Governor Katie Hobbs sent a letter to the chair of the Arizona Board of Regents and the group's executive director, John Arnold, who's also serving as interim chief financial officer at the U of A. In it, she said the situation is no longer just about finances, but is about, quote, a lack of accountability, transparency, and at the end of the day, leadership. She also called for Arnold to transfer out of his position with the university as soon as possible, citing the region's oversight role. With me now to talk more about where things stand is Michael Vasquez, senior investigative reporter with the Chronicle of Higher Education. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So how significant, sort of in the broad scope of the higher education world, like how significant is the situation in which the University of Arizona finds itself? I would say folks around the country have taken notice, and not just because of the size and prestige of the University of Arizona, but also because of how surprising this all was, that when I spoke with the chief financial officer, the interim chief financial officer last week, he readily acknowledged that just a couple of years ago, the University of Arizona was cash rich and was actually dipping into its savings, its reserves to make certain strategic investments. So if you imagine your own household budget and you've got a flush savings and you start digging into that savings, maybe to do some renovations to your home and to take that trip to Europe you always wanted. And these things that seem strategic for the betterment of your life, but then all of a sudden you're broke and and, and things have to be cut down substantially. And, and there are these painful belt tightening moves that are happening. And, and so there's almost like a state of whiplash, like economic financial whiplash. And because of that, I think that that's perhaps the most striking thing that has attracted interest nationwide. Are other schools, maybe other university systems, taking note and maybe examining their financial modeling in the wake of, you know, the models that led the U of A so far astray? I'm not aware of any specific institutions that are are drilling down in the Arizona situation for their own self-preservation, but I would not be surprised to see that happening as we move forward. Number one, because higher education as we all know, is one of the most competitive universes out there. And and institutions are always trying to get a leg up on each other and rise to spots in the rankings. But but underneath all of that, perhaps ego-driven competition, there is a fear of what comes next, just when it comes to the higher education landscape generally. There are a lot of places around the country where colleges are seeing shrinking enrollments, there are demographic issues. You have some parts of the country that are just losing population, but also there's a wider issue of just less people of college age are entering into the system. There is going to be 
hard times for at least some institutions. And so if you're running a college in 2024, getting ready for hard times is really your responsibility. And there are certainly lessons to be learned from Arizona. Yeah. Is there a sense in the higher education world about what the U of A might look like when this is over? Like when cuts that have to be made are made and layoffs that have to be done are done, like what the school might look like and how it might be different than what it's looked like in the past? I think that's the million dollar unanswered question. And one of the things that happens when a college goes through a financial crisis, and we've heard it from the University of Arizona already, are these reassurances that students won't be harmed. You know, that that, that, that basically the, the presentation that the chief financial app officer had last week, that there was a slide that said, you know, here's what we're not going to do. You know, here's the things, you know, we're, we're not going to reduce need-based aid for, for folks who, you know, students who are coming from, you know, lower income or middle income families, and, and they need that aid probably to complete their degree. And so I think that's a, a good exercise to draw some red lines in terms of, you know, here's the things that we are going to intentionally protect. But you could argue that the student experience has suffered already, that just just the financial uncertainty alone probably increases students' stress levels. And yeah. being a college student on its own is just stressful. And additionally, there was this piece of information that was mentioned to me by an employee last week that for spring semester, this course, that it's a course in, in exploring your major, and it was taught by academic advisors because the University of Arizona has a ton of majors to choose from. There's a course that students usually can take that will kind of guide you through your options. Well, let's explain this major. Let's explain that double major slash minor slash what it, whatever it might be. Yeah. And, and that course was canceled. And uh -huh. what I was told by an employee was it was canceled because they asked the advisors to teach for free. And the advisor said no. And so now you have students in spring semester who are maybe sorting through those same hundreds of possibilities of majors, but they're not getting the guidance from this course that was always offered. And so it, it can be the situation, unfortunately, of death by a thousand cuts. And, and, and we don't know what, what things are going to look like on the other side. And I think that's why it's so scary. Right. Michael, before we let you go, I'm curious about sort of the reaction to the the interaction uh, between uh, Governor Hobbs and the Board of Regents and its uh, executive director slash U of A interim chief financial officer. Uh, the governor didn't really mince her words in that letter. What kind of reaction has that generated in the, in the higher education world? I think it's fascinating and, and probably there's some probable benefit there given the confusion that I think still exists when it comes to how did we get here? How did the University of Arizona get here? There have been there has been some inconsistent messaging coming from the university just in terms of explaining when this shocking news comes out, you know, all of a sudden we're broke, like we were doing great, all of a sudden we're broke. Yeah. And and when that news comes out, there has been some inconsistencies in the messaging. There was even inconsistencies at first back in November with the dollar figure that was told to the public. At first, it was a $240 million shortfall, and then that was dramatically revised down. And so there's, there's a lot of unknowns here. And when you have a, a board, you know, the Arizona Board of Regents, when you have board members who are primarily, perhaps exclusively, I'm not 100% certain, but but certainly at least primarily appointed by you know, a previous Republican governor, mm -hmm. and then you have a Democratic governor, it, it does create an element of checks and balances in terms of the governor has, has no perhaps loyalty to the board of, that's appointed by her predecessor. 
And when things get weird, you sort of want checks and balances. When things are uncertain, and, and ultimately, I think the public and the students and university employees all deserve the truth, whatever that is, and, and real details. And this, there's going to have to be some drilling down here to, to really figure out what happened. Right. I would say that the the back and forth between the governor and, and the university and the board perhaps increases confidence among you know, just higher, edu- higher education community in general that maybe we will get to the bottom of this because sure. the flip side of it is that when you have a leadership that's all on the same team, you know, when maybe you have a governor who's appointed all the board and, and there's this intense loyalty on all sides, when everybody's on the same team, sometimes they play the, co- the cover-up game right. and then you don't really find out what happened. And right. so in this instance, the cover-up game is less likely to occur. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Michael Vasquez, Senior Investigative Reporter with the Chronicle of Higher Education. Michael, thank you. You got it. Take care. The Arizona Coyotes say they're planning to buy state trust land in North Phoenix for a new arena. The team confirmed the move in a social media post late last week. This comes as NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman said at the league's All-Star Weekend that the team's owner told him he was, quote, certain he was going to get this done. But the head of the NHL Players Association, Marty Walsh, said he has serious concerns about the situation here and that the clock is ticking on finding a permanent solution for the team. With me now to talk more about what's happening and what could happen in the future is Craig Morgan. He covers the Coyotes for PHNX Sports. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Mark. How are you? I'm doing all right. So what's uh, what's this this trust land that the Coyotes are, are looking to possibly bid on here? Well, it's as, as you mentioned, it's in Northeast Phoenix, adjacent to Scottsdale, um, near the Mayo Clinic, actually near Desert Ridge Mall. Okay. Um, they've, they've obviously been trying to find a solution for a, a while. Everybody knows about the failed Tempe vote and... They have having to scrap those plans, but this this is the latest venture for them. We'll see how it plays out. There are a lot of steps that I'm sure we're going to talk about in this interview before this becomes reality. Yeah, I mean the, the timeline here could be fairly lengthy because mm-hmm. it's not like a piece of land you just buy. They have to bid on it. There's a public process for that. Then there's permitting and all sorts of other stuff they have to do. Right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Entitlements, uh, zoning. There's so many variables at play here. It's it's hard to say when. Shovels could go in the ground even if they are successful in that bid. But you mentioned the bid as well. Um, it, it could be uh, posted for for auction as soon as February 8th, two days from now. Um, it could be delayed. Um, but even when that happens – and I've been told that there are no other – there have been no other applications for the, the land at this point. But even uh, when it's posted, other bidders could come into the yeah. process and then – you know, for Alex Morello to say he's certain he's going to win as well, I don't know how you can say with 100 percent certainty when it's an actual auction and the land's up for bid. Right. Well, so is the plan for the Coyotes that it would be a development similar to what they had planned for Tempe where there'd be an arena and other stuff around it? Yeah, there will have to be adjustments specific to the site itself. Sure. But by and large, I think the blueprint that you saw for the Tempe Entertainment District would carry over to this new site. All right. So let me ask you about Marty Walsh, the head of the NHL Players Association. Uh, Gary Bettman, as you say, seemed you know fairly rosy about the prospects and has seemed fairly bullish on the Coyotes staying in, in the Phoenix area. Marty Walsh, not so much. <laughs> Marty Walsh is doing his job as the head of the NHL Players Association, the executive director. That's his title. Um, look, Marty Walsh has no actual power to make something happen on the ground. The only power that Marty Walsh has is rhetoric, and he is a politician. He's the former mayor of Boston. Yeah. He understands rhetoric very well, and he is banging the drum loud and clear, letting everyone know that the players cannot continue to play at Mullet Arena. It's not 
an NHL facility. They want to honestly, they want better practice facilities as well. He wants a lot more from the for the players than they are getting right now. Again, he can't do anything other than make it known again and again and again that the players are unhappy. I'm not even sure he's reflecting Coyotes' attitudes fully, but again, this is his job. Uh, it's impacting revenue, certainly, when you're playing at Mullet Arena. It's yeah. impacting overall league revenue. So he is going to continue to bang that drum, as I said. Is there a sense, maybe if it's not reflecting Coyotes' player sentiment, like for visiting teams? I mean, I would imagine for some of them who haven't played in a 5,000-seat arena before, it's got to be kind of a shock coming from, you know, Madison Square Garden or some of the other palaces that some of these teams play in. Yeah, it is. It, it, and some of the players, I mean, you, the Athletic did a poll recently, and some of the players talked about not liking Mullet Arena. Other people, other players have said it's some of the best ice that they've ever skated on in huh. the NHL. I, I I know personally, looking at that visiting dressing room, it's better than many visiting dressing rooms in the NHL because I've been in them all. But, yeah, this is not an NHL arena, and I, I don't want to make it as— as if the Coyotes players are content playing at Mullet Arena. They're not. They want an NHL arena, but they also understand it is what it is. And I I think they were a little bit more patient with this process before the Tempe vote failed. Now it's, okay, is there actually a light at the end of the tunnel, or is this some indefinite thing that we're going to have to do at Mullet Arena? Right. Well, so given, as we discussed, all of the steps that have to happen, assuming, again, the Coyotes win the bid and are able to, to buy the land, are they able to continue playing at Mullet Arena for as long as they need to until a new facility is built? I'm glad you asked because I think there's a misconception about that. When the Coyotes signed to play at Mullet Arena through Arizona State and the Board of Regents approved it, it was a three-year deal with an option for a fourth year. And I think people think, oh, that's the end of it. They have to be out. No, I, I interviewed Morgan Olson, the CFO for ASU at, at the time, and he said, look, we're not, we're not going to kick the Coyotes out. If, if they need to extend it, we'll be open to that. ASU's profiting from this. ASU's happy with the arrangement. They're making a lot of money. They got an annex built that they can use now to host tournaments. They have four NHL caliber locker rooms. So it's really benefited them to have the Coyotes there in the short term. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Craig Morgan, covers the the Arizona Coyotes for PHNX Sports. Craig, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Mark. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, the family behind lots of Letterman jackets in Arizona. It definitely is a niche operation. Um, Actually, we're probably the only ones in Arizona that do this right now. We'll hear from the co-owner of Phoenix Lettering. But first, the head of Phoenix's Office of Accountability and Transparency is out, raising questions about the independence of that office, just as the city is trying to convince the Department of Justice that they don't need further police oversight. Roger Smith was the first hire at the office, which was formed after years of debate, and as the city's police department recorded a record number of police shootings. He is resigning at the end of this week after just two years on the job. He says the Office of Accountability and Transparency, or OAT, does not have the independence it needs to perform its responsibilities. ABC 15 investigative reporter Melissa Blasius broke the story, and she's on the line now to tell us more. Thanks for coming on, Melissa. Thanks for having me, Lauren. All right. So tell us first about what Roger Smith is saying here about why he's resigning. Why now? Sure. Well, he uh, sent a notice of resignation letter to the city manager last week, and he literally says that 
events, recent events had led him to conclude that OAT does not have the independence required to effectively perform its responsibilities. And those responsibilities is to provide independent civilian police oversight in the city of Phoenix. He also says in his letter that he uh, was not, uh, could not perform free of retaliation or undue restrictions, the responsibility of OAT director with independence, impartiality, and integrity. Hmm. And so basically he's saying that he can't do his job, which is to be independent. Yeah. This also had to do with with a second in command he, he tried to hire, right? Right. So some of this has to do with the city's rescission of a job offer for a candidate for the OAT attorney position. That's the Office of Accountability and Transparency attorney. Mm -hmm. That would have been the second most senior position in the agency. Um, Now, other city leaders have told us that that person did not meet the criteria set out in city ordinance. But there's dispute over whether or not that really is the case and that this person's past employment history would have um, prevented them from actually taking taking the job under ordinance. And Hmm. so that is some of the back and forth that went between the two of them. Before he decided to resign. Yeah. Okay. so then let's back up for a few minutes, Melissa, and just talk about the Office of Accountability and Transparency. This was a it was a long road to get this office formed. There was a lot of debate about it. Tell us what was happening at the time that really made advocates push for accountability measures for Phoenix PD. Sure. Well, this all came out of Um, years of debate with lots of citizen comments about whether or not to create an Office of Accountability and Transparency. At the time when this was created in in 2021, Phoenix was one of the very few large cities in America that did not have some kind of civilian police oversight. And this was in the aftermath of that that terrible year in 2018 when Phoenix police shot more people uh, than any other police force in America. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of concern about what Phoenix officers were doing and whether they were respecting people's rights, if they were using excessive force and their own ability to be accountable and transparent themselves. And that is why this office was created after a lot of debate. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was changed, right? In 2022, there was a a law signed by then Governor Doug Ducey that seemed to really curtail the office's powers. What did that law do? Sure. Well, originally OAT was set up to um, involve an OAT director and then and then kind of a robust citizen oversight board. The law in 2022 basically said that you couldn't have um, an investigation of police officers without the majority of the board reviewing the police, having some kind of prior law enforcement experience or training. Mm-hmm. Now, OAT was set up to be the absolute opposite of that. So instead of being able to uh, fully investigate um, Phoenix police uh, allegations of misconduct, they instead had to take more of a, a monitoring role. So what they basically are able to do is they're able to get the police investigation and then go through it. And then after that, issue some sort of monitoring report, which um, would talk about, for example, whether uh the investigation uh, was complete, whether it had uh, the necessary aspects, whether there needed to be changes in policy, um, what what tactics were used and if those were appropriate, um, and disciplinary recommendations, whether those were appropriate. Hmm. Now, we know based on um, 
a, a report that OAT issued a quarterly report about the office that as of the end of September, that OAT had actually started, uh, opened at least 38 of these monitoring investigations. The interesting thing is, though, after two years in existence and 38 open investigations, some with reports pending, the office has never been able to issue an actual monitoring report on mm. any of these police internal affairs investigations that they've looked into. We are still trying to figure out exactly why. Yeah, yeah. This all also happened at kind of around the same time that the Department of Justice, the feds, had had come in and have been investigating Phoenix police for use of force, for how it treats homeless people, many issues on the table there. How does that sort of play into what's happening now and Roger Smith resigning? Well, uh, quite a bit plays into that. Uh, before Roger Smith came to Phoenix, he actually worked in the city of Cleveland in, in a similar position. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as part of that job, he actually worked very closely with the DOJ in provisions of that city's consent decree in order to ensure their police officers were uh, not violating people's civil rights. Now, Phoenix remains under a DOJ pattern or practice investigation where they're looking into whether people's civil rights are being violated in the city and whether or not the city of Phoenix should have a similar consent decree to something like Cleveland had when Roger Smith was over there. Mm. Um, so the city has been a uh, city leader, city council, city manager has come out and said, we don't think we need a consent decree in the city of Phoenix. In fact, they issued a 50 page report just last month saying all of the reasons that they think that they don't need a consent decree, that they need a lesser um, intervention from the Department of Justice. And in fact, part of that 50-page report that they called the Road to Reform Report Mm -hmm. said that OAT provides robust, independent, and civilian review of the Phoenix Police Department. Now, again, Roger Smith, just a week after that report or two weeks after that report was issued, came out and said, well, he doesn't think under the current terms that he can be independent. Mm. Lots to watch for there. That is ABC 15 investigative reporter Melissa Blasius joining us to talk more about this story. Melissa, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, the 2024 election year is upon us, and our state is said to be one of the most contested, a true battleground rife with independent voters and central to many of the most contentious issues at hand. But while many in the world of politics are ramping up for a good fight, the election only causes anxiety for many others. In fact, election anxiety is a real thing today. New research has shown it ramps up heading up to Election Day and can cause everything from insomnia to panic attacks. I spoke more about it and how we can all cope with Dr. Ayman Fanous, chair of the psychiatry department at the U of A's College of Medicine in Phoenix been noticed not just anecdotally but also in research that anxiety levels increase in the run-up to an election and they usually spike around the election day itself and they decline a little bit afterwards. Uh, you know, some people have used the terminology for this election anxiety disorder. Of course, that's not really a DSM disorder, but it certainly has been uh, shown in research to actually be a, a real thing. So, for example, Um, Studies have shown that prescription medication use for anti-anxiety medications such as, you know, SSRIs, Prozac, things like that, Mm -hmm. uh, do increase in the run-up to the election and, and decline thereafter, as well as the utilization of psychotherapeutic services, but also, you know, even biological studies such as 
uh, studying the levels of salivary cortisol. And cortisol, of course, is the stress hormone, as well as testosterone, as a matter of fact. Levels of those hormones are increased in the run-up to uh, an election. Hmm. And again, after the election itself, they're, they're, they're shown to decline somewhat. That's so interesting. So when what's the history here? It's been written about really um, in the last, I would say, 10 years or so. And the vast majority of literature, you know, has actually uh, been published, you know, between, like, say, 2015 and, and, and the current time. Um, and the studies have actually been done uh, around the 2016 and the 2020 elections. Mm-hmm. So these are the two elections that have been uh, really uh, – been studied most uh, effectively and, and, and most deeply. Now, it's interesting. Um, there's been more anxiety uh, surrounding the 2020 election than the 2016 election, where a substantially larger number of people have reported that the election has caused them a great deal of stress. Mm. So that was kind of an interesting finding of these studies. Tell me what this looks like, like physically in a person. What are the symptoms of this kind of anxiety? Sure. Well, of course, the hallmark of anxiety itself is excessive worry, uncontrollable worry. You know, most of us, you know, we we get worried about things here and there, but we're able to sort of like distract ourselves or sort of do some self-talk to sort of change our way of thinking about something. Uh, But with with anxiety at this level, it's very hard to actually talk yourself down. Um, It it sort of takes a life of its own. Um, And it's accompanied by certain physical signs and symptoms, as we would call them, including restlessness, where mm-hmm. an individual would be fidgety, having a hard time sitting still. Uh, they might get irritable, you know, snap at people for things that ordinarily would not anger them. Uh, there might be muscle tension, especially in the back, neck area. Um, and of course, that can be accompanied by headaches. You certainly have sleep disturbances, usually insomnia. And you can get things like you know, GI upset and, you know, including things like bad dreams as well. Bad dreams about the election, as a matter of fact, can be can be part of this. I wanted to ask you about sort of the the kind of the causes. Like, I know that this seems to have increased with the 2020 election, which makes a lot of sense, given the sort of shift in the country at that moment. But it's interesting, especially coming from a journalist perspective, because I can imagine it, this kind of anxiety must be sort of fed by the news cycle. Yeah, absolutely. It is fed by the news cycle. And one of the things that we recommend to people is that they limit their news intake. But there are a number of causes for it. I mean, basically, what you're seeing is the worry that the candidate who will win the election will be basically reversing certain policies that an individual finds beneficial. Or you might actually see it as a repudiation of your own values, you know, the the winning candidate being someone that you don't necessarily agree with. Um, it gives you a sense that, you know, your values are not necessarily highly valued, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the country. So there's a, a number of things. And that, you know, leads to people feeling less self-esteem, decreased sense of cohesion in society, so on and so forth. Yeah. Tell us about treatment of this. Like, I know the sort of general idea of treating anxiety, there are certain things you can do and certain techniques people can use. But it also sounds interesting when it comes to election anxiety, because it sounds like voting itself or like getting involved might help. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things about anxiety is fear of the unknown and a sense of helplessness that you can't change a certain outcome. That helplessness actually increases the sense of anxiety and and loss control. So anything that you can do to essentially take control over at least your own situation can certainly ameliorate the situation. So for example, voting is really the number one thing that you can do. You know, everybody's voice is equally loud. And by voting, 
you have shown that, you know, you have some efficacy and that you can make a difference. And, you know, there's a number of other things that you can do. You, certainly giving other people of your time and effort and helping others, even outside of the political arena, whether it's, you know, uh, volunteering uh, to help the homeless or something like that. Uh, could be very helpful. Just doing random acts of kindness, you know, taking something off someone's plate, helping them with something that they find difficult, mm-hmm. um, something totally informal like that can actually be very uh, beneficial. And number of other things that can be done. As I said earlier, limiting news exposure is definitely one of them because that just tends to drive the cycle of anxiety. Um, it's really important to maintain uh, interpersonal connectedness during these periods of time, to have someone that you can talk to, even watch the debates with, things like that, someone that you can sort of bounce ideas off without the conversation turning toxic or name-calling or, you know, anger, outbursts, and things like that. You really want to have someone that you can trust. Focusing on physical health is really important, uh, and certainly exercise is very important. And, and, you know, exercise doesn't have to be working out like classically. It could just really be uh, even a 10 or 15-minute walk could be very beneficial. Hmm. So right. I want to ask you, lastly, just about sort of the the other sorts of things that this might be compared to, I guess, like the other kinds of world events or existential threats that you might also see spikes in anxiety around. Like, do we respond to elections in the U.S. now similarly to the way other countries might respond to war? Well, I think that's certainly possible. I mean, we, we really haven't been studying this phenomenon for long enough to make those kinds of comparisons. But the way the run-up to war has been described in some other countries, including our country, for example, the Gulf War. I remember when I was uh, in college, you know, during uh, the first Gulf War, um, the, the, the sort of anxiety that gripped the nation uh, does have a, a similar feeling to it as the kind of anxiety that we see um, prior to, to these very contested elections. Although, you know, again, the research hasn't really been done, but certainly on a subjective level, there, there definitely does seem to be a parallel. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. That is Dr. Ayman Fanous, chair of the psychiatry department at the U of A's College of Medicine, Phoenix, and professor and chair of psychiatry there. Dr. Fanous, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for shedding some light on this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. There are a lot of debates and questions about how we allocate water, especially as supplies become scarcer. But what if we thought about water the same way we think about radio spectrum? My next guest is thinking about that. Billy Ferguson is a Ph.D. student in economics at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he focuses on water property rights and market design. He and his advisor, the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Milgram, have written a paper suggesting water could be auctioned off in a manner similar to a radio spectrum auction. Ferguson joins me to talk more about this idea and the connections he says he's discovered between water allocation and electromagnetic spectrum allocation. And Billy, what exactly are those connections? How are these similar? Yeah, so electromagnetic spectrum uh, was allocated in 1927, primarily for radio and television uses. And so you can think of it as this resource that was allocated a long time ago when the needs of the world were maybe a little bit different than they are today. Uh, And spectrum is quite a complicated resource in that if you have two broadcasters sort of broadcasting adjacently to each other, their signals can interfere. Mm -hmm. And so if you are, for example, in nowadays, you're a big 
telecom company and you're trying to clear spectrum or use spectrum to broadcast data for phones, if you're trying to buy up these spectrum licenses, you have to be very careful to not interfere with other uh, people that are broadcasting. And so this is a very hard problem to solve between any two individual buyers and sellers because there's a lot of third parties affected. And similarly in water, when water was allocated, the rights to water were allocated a long time ago through the prior appropriation system and their uses uh, interfere with each other. Uh, the runoff from your use can change the water supply elsewhere in the system. Additionally, sort of the local economic value of that water is important. And so you can think of it as another resource that is similarly hard to reallocate between any buyer and seller because of these externalities with others. It seems like the finite nature of both water and the spectrum, like there's only so much of either, also seems to maybe play a role here as well. Does that does that sort of play into what you're thinking in terms of how a, an auction kind of thing could work for water? Yeah, that's true as well. So when you have a finite resource, you know, you can just produce more spectrum or produce more water very easily. Uh, and so when you have other uses or you think there's a big misallocation of the resource, you need to do something big to sort of facilitate that reallocation. Right. Well, so how would an auction of water rights ideally in your mind go? Like, what would it look like? So based on how we ran the incentive auction for Spectrum, the auction has sort of two active components that current right holders would engage in. So one of them we call a reverse auction. That is one in which uh, water rights are bought back. And then a forward auction, and that is one in which water rights are sold. So how this works is in the reverse auction, a very high price is stated at first. And all water right holders are supposed to raise their hand if at that high price, they would sell their water right at that price. And so as the price decreases, you'll start to see that people's hands go down and they would no longer like to sell at that price. And then sort of on the flip side for the forward auction, we start at a very low price and we say, who would want to buy water at this price? Everybody raises their hands and we raise the price uh, until the hands that are down and the hands that are up on the respective sides of the auction equate and that we can balance the system. So by doing it that way, you're finding sort of the, the happy medium where people who have water to sell have a price at which they're willing to sell it, where it makes sense for them to sell it. And that same price where people who need water are okay and can afford to, to buy it? Yeah, at a high level, that's exactly what's going on. I think exactly as in Spectrum, as we think will happen in water, in actuality, it won't be that everybody is paying or selling at exactly the same price. So some Spectrum licenses were worth way more than other Spectrum licenses. And so similarly, different water uses or water used in particular places could be more valuable given the hydrological network and where the water is used, where the water would go. And so the prices could vary between users, but everybody's getting the same information at the same time about how much money they would be paid or how much money they would have to pay. I would imagine this also is predicated on the fact that there are enough people who are who have excess water or excess water rights who don't need the water they have and can afford, not financially, but afford water-wise to sell it. Yes, yeah. The, the goal of the mechanism is to find the people where selling water is easiest for them. So whether that means they can change what crops they go, whether that means they can install some sort of treated wastewater system to reuse water, uh, whether that means they can actually just change how they irrigate 
and they can sell off the savings from having a more efficient irrigation system, we want to be able to, in a single mechanism, find those people who have options to reduce their water use for the cheapest amount and then compensate them, help them make that switch. I'm curious if there are particular water users or water rights holders that you think this would be better for. Like you think of the sort of the, the range of, of water users between agriculture and, you know, cities and homeowners, you know, just sort of regular people, you know, at, at their homes. Are there certain groups where this might make more sense to, to do than others? Yeah, so I think on both sides, there are certain users that could benefit a lot. So if thinking about agriculture, in California, which is the place I study the most, you have a lot of farmers who are growing almond trees, orange trees, and these perennial crops need water for many years uh, to produce fruit. And so stability and access to water over a long time period is important for these people. And so being able to, to purchase water on a market would be very useful for them, especially in years of drought, because they've made this long, many-year investment in these crops. On the other hand, if you have people with annual crops, maybe like alfalfa or just some sort of grain, it's very easy for these uh, growers to not grow for a year and then grow again the following year. So in years of scarcity, uh, there's a nice opportunity for reallocation uh, between these uh, two users. And then on the city side, I mean, you have in lots of states across the country, but also in California, that urban or residential prices for water are skyrocketing. And a lot of this is that utilities do not have easy access to more water. And so there are cities that would, are already paying so much for water that would be very happy to buy more water from, from willing farmers, especially in years of scarcity. When you are looking to create the, this market system to do this, I wonder if you're envisioning any kind of maybe oversight or control, because, you know, unlike Spectrum, like people can't live without water. You can live without, without radio Spectrum. You can't really live without water. So I'm wondering if you're envisioning any kind of way to make sure that people who really need water to, to survive and to live will still have access to that within the overall market framework. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. And that is a, a key point uh, where water, I think, is different than Spectrum, and it's important to think about that when you're trying to design the system. What's nice is when you're in this stage where you're imagining this perfect world of how we want a system to look, you can set sort of boundaries on how far you're able to sell or buy water. So, for example, there are some people that have said that if an agricultural community sells so much water that they end up fallowing over a quarter of their land, that that can have very bad impacts for the local economy. But up to that 25% following sort of boundary, there's not a lot of impact for the community. Hmm. And so you could think of sort of guidelines like this, the community can only sell so much water in a given year so that the local economy can adjust and be okay. And then similarly for cities, their right can never go below a certain amount in a given year. So these are the kinds of constraints that you can put into the system. Interesting. All right. That is Billy Ferguson, a Ph.D. student in economics at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Billy, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. And now it's time for another story in our series spotlighting makers around the valley called Made in Arizona. 
it just, it connected me to my roots and it's just something so portable and inexpensive and felt that I could take risk with embroidery in a way that I couldn't take risks in other areas of art. A lot of my paintings, gravity doesn't matter a whole lot. From there, I had a request for uh, hand-dyed wedding gowns and that's how it started. <laughs> so I didn't plan to be a wedding designer. I just knew I wanted to work for myself. I love to sew. I love to just be in my piece. I try to tug at people's heartstrings. I try to do something disturbing, but usually a duality piece. But this year was all about, you know what? I don't want any madness in my work. I want it really just to be this big, beautiful place that I want to live in. Dance wasn't something that is necessarily seen in galleries, you know? And I just remember being like, this is the key. This is how dance gets out there. I escaped real life and I went back in time. And today we're also stepping back in time just a bit. Inside a standalone single-story building, a lone commercial one surrounded by houses on 35th Avenue in Phoenix, sewing machines that were probably made around the time of World War II were. We just make varsity letters, we make high school letterman jackets, we make school banners, we make car club jackets... That's Sue Castelletti, the co-owner of Phoenix Lettering. The company has been around since 1957. In 1980, Sue and her former husband Jack bought it from the two sisters who'd owned it. Inside the lobby, you can see patches of all different kinds of activities, from chess club to choir to student council to junior ROTC. There are patches for musical instruments, sports, and achievements. And then there are the mascots. Lions, pumas, eagles, jaguars, and all manner of other scary and intimidating animal. The main workroom is filled with sewing machines, and as we'll hear, with members of Sue and Jack's family. I stopped by the shop recently, and in the back room, away from the sewing machine somewhat, I asked Sue about how busy it was, despite this being kind of a niche business. It definitely is a niche operation. Um, actually, we're probably the only ones in Arizona that do this right now. There used to be other companies, but they've all gone out of business. I think we survive because we're family. You know, we'll work long when we need to, and we'll all pitch in, and we're, we've got longevity, you know. So I think that's why it works for us. So how did you come to, to want to do this? How did you come to buy this place? Mm -hmm. um, actually, Jack's parents um, were looking for a business when his dad retired. And he knew some people in this area. And he knew these. there were two ladies from Ohio that have started this in 1957. And they were going to retire. So um, he said, okay, let's buy this. And all of the kids start working here. And... So we did. We The ladies, they stayed here a couple months, and they trained us. So that's when I first, I knew nothing about chain stitch embroidery. So um, they trained us, they got us rolling, and then they moved to Prescott, and we've been here ever since. Did you know how to sew before you took this place over? Actually, yeah. And I was in grade school, I was in 4-H, and sewing, make aprons, things like that. But yeah. But probably not to this extent. And no, this is a whole different ball game. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned Jack, um, and you have a lot of family working here as well, right? Yes. Jack and I um, bought it from his parents, and we have our daughter, Katie, that works here. Our granddaughter, Angelina, works here. 
we've had my other kids have worked here in the past. We have one of our oldest employees who's been here for 30 years. We've had her, three of her granddaughters work here. So they come and go. People come and go. Do you get orders from just Arizona? Are you working on, on schools across the country or across the, the West or anything? It's basically Arizona, mostly in the Valley. We do northern Arizona schools. Since we got a website, we've done things across the country. You know, people want a jacket or a certain patch. Uh, even overseas, somebody from Germany, somebody from Japan, um, we'll do whatever. So I think for a lot of folks, when they think of, like, school letter jackets, they think of, like, the fawns, right? They're, you know, the happy days, the 50s and 60s. Are they still as popular in high schools now as they have been in years past? I don't know how popular, but we sell a lot. We sell a lot of jackets. We actually are surprised, too, that they're still popular, that we're still selling them. But I think over the years... Um, uh, fashion designers, um, you know, MTV, you know, different um, celebrities and style fashion people, you know, have used it. We're just a small custom, you know, business that can handle small runs. We're not geared for big runs. So I've got to ask you about the practicality of a letter jacket in a place like Phoenix, because those are big, thick leather jackets. Like, are people able to actually wear them and not sweat their brains out? Uh, yeah, um, they do. They do. They wear them in the mornings. They wear them to football games. But the thing is, people are so proud of the students for accomplishing a sports, you know, uh, getting an award for sports. The parents come in, they're proud. The students are proud. The students that come in are like, exceptional teenagers. I mean, I feel so lucky to see cream of the crop teenagers, which a lot of people don't see. I see parents that are proud of their kids. It's, it's so delightful. It, I mean, it almost gives me chills. It's, it's really exciting to see how happy people are. I can imagine. I mean, but it's not just, as you were showing me before we started recording, it's not just patches and, and school logos and things like that, you, you have some of your own stuff, right? You've sort of branched out and, and let your, your own creative juices flow a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. After a while, you know, I've been here for 43 years doing the same horses and stallions and birds and, and things like that. So um, I wanted to stimulate myself or challenge myself. So I started to do fun little patches that somebody could put on a denim jacket so we've been going to like street fairs and doing real well selling things like that and and I'll take my machine with us and um, then we can sew names on things if somebody has a jacket with their name on it I can do that right on the spot and um, I've even started doing more fine art like using my machine to do portraits and it's very stimulating to, like, have the needle be my paintbrush and my thread be the paint and just see where the shading is. It's, it's like I said, 43 years, and I'm still learning, still learning. So you mentioned that you bring your machines to some of the street fairs, other events you go to. Those are not new machines. <laughs> like, what's the, like, what's the significance of continuing to use the machines as old as they are? Well, they work good. They're all metal. 
we can, if they break, we can work on them. Um, they're cool to look at. The people are just amazed at what they do and how they run. And yeah, I don't even know if they make new ones of these machines. You know, these were here when we got them in 1980 and probably here since 1957. And I think they were made in the 40s. How long do you think you want to keep doing this? Oh, gosh, that's a question. Jack's mom worked with this till she was 91 years old. She did a little part of the business. Um, I have no plans on retiring. I would love to stay and work as long as I'm able. How much of that is because your family is right outside there? Like probably 99%. <laughs> and because it's a creative field, too. All right. Well, Sue, thank you so much for having me out here. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you. This has been delightful. That's Sue Castelletti, co-owner of Phoenix Lettering. You can see photos of the shop and its patches at theshow.kjzz.org. Did you ever have a letter jacket, Mark? I did not. No. Yeah, I think I might have, but it wasn't for sports. Oh. <laughs> I wouldn't you remember if you had one? Yeah, I'd have to go check. Was I it really for, like, not theater? sure I do. Like, yeah, something like okay. that. Debate maybe. That's cool. <laughs> a lot of people in my school did. I just, you know, I was I was never the cool kid. Yeah, gotta be a cool kid. Some All things right. don't change. <laughs> You're plenty cool. Well, that'll do it for our Tuesday edition of the show. Be sure to join us again tomorrow morning with much more. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.